Hey folks, I'm really excited for this episode, our 91st episode so far, can you believe it? In which I talk with Amy Rowling McGee and Zach Reed from the Health Policy Institute of Ohio, an organization we talk about a lot on this show and whose nonpartisan work serves as a lifeline for policymakers, educators, and many others throughout our state. As you may know, if you've listened to the last few episodes, this is going to be the last Prognosis Ohio for a few months. I'm going to be taking a little break after a long year, rethinking the aims of the show and tweaking the sound design, social media, and website. I'm also going to be thinking long and hard about what a show like this could or should do with the sole aim of having meaningful conversations about health and healthcare here in Ohio. But I'd like your feedback as well. Some of the questions I'm curious about are, should I change the focus, perhaps even looking a bit beyond Ohio? Should I change the way I approach the show? Does my interviewing need an overhaul? And if so, in what ways? And what guests and themes would you like to see on the show? If you have the time to be in touch with your thoughts, we'd really appreciate it. And also, this reboot's going to cost me a bit of money to pull off, so I'd be super appreciative if you'd consider becoming a Patreon for the show for just $3 a month at patreon.com slash prognosisohio. You can also find links and more info at prognosisohio.com. And thanks. On today's episode of Prognosis Ohio, I talk with Amy Rowling McGee and Zach Reed about the Health Policy Institute of Ohio's 2021 Health Value Dashboard, a biennial report they produce that provides a broad and often sobering look at what we get in terms of health outcomes in Ohio for the investments we make. On the episode, I talk with Amy and Zach about a wide range of issues, but we focus on the three areas that the HPIO dashboard focused on, childhood adversity and trauma, equity and health disparities, and investments in prevention. I'm hoping that this is going to be the first of many conversations I'll be able to have with HPO on this show, especially since we only really scratched the surface today. If you haven't already acquainted yourself with HPIO's work, you should do so by visiting healthpolicyohio.org. Also, while I'm talking with Amy and Zach about the report, I want to mention that the report itself was and always is a team effort. For example, while Amy is HBIO's president and a contributor to the Health Value Dashboard, and Zach was one of the Health Value Dashboard's authors, the report was co-authored by Reem Alley and Amy Stevens and supported by a host of contributors. The report's comprehensive, and I encourage you to read it. You're also going to want to check out the health equity profiles we mentioned in our conversation. We're going to be linking to all of this in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. Okay, now to my conversation with Amy Rowling McGee and Zach Reed. You know, your ears are probably burning a lot at HPIO because I, I'm trying to think, you know, I don't know if we've gotten through a single episode of this show since we started it in 2018 without mentioning in some way, some study, some analysis, some data point that came from the Health Policy Institute of Ohio. So I always feel particularly lucky to 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 have that and also um, grateful that we have you. So uh, this was long overdue, and it, it's nice to see you both. Well, thanks. Thanks for sharing that with us. We're always glad to hear of our work being used. <laughs> right. It's nice, right? I mean, I'm an academic, yes. so I'm an expert in my work not being used sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> or at least it feels like that until you find out that, oh, wow, actually, we've been reading your stuff. Uh, you know. So let's we're talking about the health uh, value dashboard that you that you all do at HBIO every other year. But I want to start with the big headline, right? We always like to start with the big stuff and and the big headline is uh, kind of an old headline in a way because we are still 47th 
out of um, the 50 states plus DC in health value. And we're going to get a little bit into what health value is and, and, and why we use that approach here. Um, but there's no sugarcoating this finding, right? This is not something that most Ohioans are going to be happy to hear. And in the executive report, I mean, you you call out and you say, essentially, costly downstream care to treat health problems is, is one of the big problems here. So I wanted to start out first by talking about this idea of downstream care and why it's a problem before we get into some of the, the nitty gritty, um, you know, and, and why, because there is a kind of master frame here of what's dragging us down in, in terms of value. So the, the bottom line, as you just said, Dan, is that Ohioans are living less healthy lives and spending more on downstream health care than people in most other states. Um, what we know is that our health is um, influenced by a number of modifiable factors. And surprisingly, only about 20% of our health is estimated to be influenced by clinical care which means right. access to care and quality of care. Um, and, you know, as an aside, Ohio actually performs pretty well on that. You know, we know that mm. if you have an accident or injury, if you're sick, if you have a chronic health condition, it's absolutely critical to have access to high quality health care. And because of a number of policy changes in Ohio and across our nation, we are doing better in that domain. But in the other areas uh, that influence our health, we're not doing so well. So uh, we know that our social and economic en environment and our physical environment in which we live contribute about 50% to our overall health. And we're not doing well at all in those areas. And it's, it's lack of attention and investment in those areas that's driving our poor health value rank. Um, that lack of investment and attention to those areas leads to more downstream care. So we think of it, if you think of a river, like we want to go upstream and address the root causes of poor health before we end up with this result of poor health outcomes and frankly, unsustainable healthcare spending. Um, so that, that's what we mean by downstream care. It's, it's always an awkward conversation at the medical school where I teach at Ohio University. You know, the first week of medical school, you have all these <laughs> excited medical students venturing into their medical education and you have to tell them, well, look, and they say, you know, I want, I want to change the world. I want to help people. I want to do that. And you say, well, we have to understand where clinical care fits into that because I think they come in thinking that clinical care is a difference maker. And then you show them a couple data points and they're like, ooh, this is different than I, I thought. And they say, yeah, that's why we need you to think about housing. That's why we need you to think about food supports and, and environmental issues and racism and things like that. Absolutely. And I, you know, I think that comes as a surprise to to many of us. Cause, mm -hmm. you know, if if things are going relatively well for you, like personally, like you're you're able to see a physician or some other medical provider when you're sick. Um, you know, you're feeling well generally day to day. You have enough money to buy food and other essentials in your life. Um, you forget that that is not the case for for many people and many Ohioans. Right. Um, so it is it is eye opening, I think, um, to look at this data. We have over a hundred metrics in the health value dashboard, and you know to look at that in detail and really think about the lives that are behind 
that data. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it kind of, it kind of draws us into a, a sense of empathy with others that, um, you know, a realization that, that others are struggling and that we, we need to do more to address those root causes of poor health. So again, you know, I'm going to encourage listeners to get into the details of the report and to follow the links. But let's let's get into some of the the actual areas. And, and I'm really drawing on. I, I so appreciate that you you know you seem to understand that different people interface with these kinds of things in different ways. You have a one pager, a six pager. You have the full report. You know, and it's it's very helpful. Um, I find myself going to the six pager a lot and then diving into the report as needed. But Zach, I'll turn to you. So, you know, the three major areas uh, in the executive summary, uh, you talk about childhood adversity and trauma, you talk about equity, and you talk about the need for prevention. Let's just start with childhood adversity and trauma, because it, it strikes me, you know, when you pull out three things for childhood adversity and trauma to be one of them, that's really making a big statement. And I, you know, I'm also curious, I mean, I'm guessing five years ago, we wouldn't have even really had this on our radar in the same way as we do today. This, this seems to all be evolving. So can you just tell us a little bit about the long-term consequences of this and, and why it's one of the, the major areas that the report ends up focusing on? Yeah, absolutely. So we we pull out childhood adversity and trauma, first of all, because it, it shines as a bright light of... Um, an opportunity for improvement in Ohio, right? So we rank 39th out of the 50 states and DC on the percent of children who have experienced two or more adverse childhood experiences. And to just define that for your listeners, adverse childhood experiences are um, events such as experiencing physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, or living in a household that um, experiences serious problems, uh, like a household member um, with substance use problems or mental illness or even incarceration. Um, And HPIO has done some work outside of the dashboard to look at the long-term consequences. And this follows on other research that we've seen coming out of other states. Um, But just to give a couple of examples, we found that 36% of depression diagnosis among all Ohioans can be um, attributed to experiencing adverse childhood experiences, Mm. right? Um, 32% of current smoking which is another bright light in our dashboard as, yeah. as a, a challenge for Ohio, um, can be attributed to, again, experiencing adversity. Um, and not only are there the very uh, serious consequences for individuals, um, there's also real economic cost to this, right? So we took that analysis of the health impacts of ACEs and looked at the economic consequences associated with those health impacts and found that about $10 billion in annual healthcare spending can be attributed to adversity during childhood. $10 billion. Yeah. Yeah. And it's amazing too, you know, if I'm hearing you correctly, I mean, you're doing this kind of longitudinal analysis that we haven't been very good at doing in this country in general and in Ohio, connecting what happens in the early years of life to you know, teenage years or beyond, like thinking about incarceration in your 20s and realizing that that could have origins way, way back in somebody's life. 
Um, right. you know, is, is that new terrain for the kind of work that health policy, the health, that HBIO does? Yeah, it, it is. And, um, collecting this data and being able to connect it to long-term, um, consequences is definitely, um, an area where we need more intention and more focus from researchers. But I can just share a story from a conference that I attended from the American Enterprise Institute a few years ago. And I talked with a gentleman who had had several careers that were successful and that he had retired from who was basically volunteering um, at a charter school up in Michigan. And we had a great conversation about how he did not understand what trauma was or the serious impacts of trauma until he sat down with some students that went to the school, which was in a low-income, um, predominantly black part of Detroit. Um, and he just described to me in, in terms that I really hadn't um, heard before the serious consequences of trauma, which he didn't recognize or mm -hmm. believe until he had that very real experience. So I think... Um, Having the data to really back that up and bring that to light for policymakers is important, and I'm glad that we're able to, to start doing that and contribute to that conversation. The, the second area of equity, obviously, we talk about, we've been talking about a lot. You know, I, it strikes me, you know, you do these every two years uh, in these biennial dashboards, but you know, since the last time you did one in 2019, I mean, we had 2020 in the middle of that, which is a hell of a year to have lodged in the middle of trying to assess something like uh, health value. Um, but we know more now about, you know, the systemic issues in our state. Um, we know about health disparities more and more. We've talked about them with regard to COVID, but also just generally. So, you know, we're, we're in a state where this is in transition um, but also here again, you know, how do you think about equity and link that up to the value area? You know, because one of the things that strikes me is that it's very hard to see how these early events have those upstream effects. Um, and, and equity is one that I've noticed and a lot of people really struggle to understand how could racism be, you know, driving health outcomes. So there's still a lot of people that still don't get that. So how does that kind of appear in your findings? Zach, if I could just add, um, and I think it would be great if you could share some detail from our equity profiles, um, but we have another publication that speaks directly to the question you just asked, Dan. Yeah. Uh, we have a publication that we released last year um, focused on the connections between racism and health. We've done an in-depth analysis of research findings that demonstrate that there is a both an, a direct and an indirect impact of racism on health, um, and you know we can we can see that manifested in the data we analyze in the dashboard and in the equity profiles. So I'll hand it off to to Zach to share some more detail there. Yeah, so in the dashboard, we really focus on um, the experiences of racism and other forms of discrimination as having direct and Im indirect impacts on health. We actually pulled out some data from the National Survey of Children's Health and also the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Survey to look at the experiences of racism among children 
and the direct health impacts of racism for adults. Uh, we found that the parents of black children were 17 times more likely to report that their child had been treated unfairly due to race. Mm-hmm. And we found that one in five black adult Ohioans reported a physical or emotional symptom as a result of unfair treatment due to race. So that's one in five black Ohioans experiencing a negative health outcome as a result of, of being treated poorly due to their race. But we also know that it's not just direct and interpersonal experiences of racism and discrimination that have negative impacts, right? The, the policies, the systems, and the beliefs that underlie those policies and systems lead to inequities in community conditions that also have significant and negative health impacts. Um, one really good example of that is food insecurity, Right, So not having enough to eat. And we see that across all of the groups that we look at in the dashboard, systematically disadvantaged groups consistently have um, experience of food insecurity more often. The same is true with housing cost burden. And we know that when people don't have enough money to eat or they spend too much money on their housing, there's not enough left over to cover other necessities. With each of these areas, you also have a few very specific policy ideas that could be considered to, to remedy or address some of these issues. I, I will say, um, and you know, that as I look at them, I think, wow, the, almost each, I mean, they're all very good, but they're also big lifts, right, in many ways, and really big, right? As big as the problem is, so too need to be the policy solutions. And that's, I think, the conversation we're having, um, especially around these huge issues of trauma and equity. And we're going to talk to talk about prevention in a moment. Right. Well, and, you know, we know that that there are policy and other actions that could improve our health value ranking. Um, this is not inevitable. <laughs> we, right, we know what right. works. There's evidence related to what works. Um, and we know that improving our health value rank will take action in both the public and the private sectors. This isn't, this isn't right. only um, a problem for public policy makers to resolve. Um, there's a, there's many opportunities that could be acted upon in the private sector as well. Um, but we also know that federal, state, and local level policies are important levers for improvement. Yeah. And, you know, of course, our mission is to provide the independent and nonpartisan analysis needed to create evidence-informed state health policy. So we've just highlighted some examples of a few policy actions that could be taken to drive improvement, but there are many, many more, and there are actions that could be taken in the private sector as well. Yeah, and we've also seen, especially during COVID, you you just... I I developed a renewed appreciation. Maybe it's because I have a kid entering into the schools now, but for for what school boards do and for what the schools do and how critical they are. I mean, you know, during non-pandemic times, kids spend a lot of time in schools. So that's got to be a place to start to address a lot of this. Yes. God bless all of the the school board members, the superintendents, the principals, the teachers, because <laughs> it's been yep. a, a, a challenging year for all of them. 
they've tried their hardest with a really bad hand they were dealt. So mm -hmm. yeah, shout out to them. Mm -hmm. So let's turn to prevention, which is the third area of the executive um, summary. You know, it strikes me. I remember one moment during the pandemic where Governor DeWine, maybe he said this a few times, but he came out and kind of said, you know, we, we really have not invested enough in our public health infrastructure and we are paying for it right now. We're realizing it. And, you know, I know a lot of public health people, as you all do. And there was kind of this moment of, I wonder if we're learning this lesson that we we better start investing. We bet, and you know, your findings show that we are on the low end of just even just the money we put into public health, as opposed to other kinds of, um, you know, those those downstream uh, investments. I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about prevention and what it means. I mean, it's a huge area as well. Getting ahead of things is not something we do well politically because it means we have to actually pony up before there's a problem. We have to we have to envision what could be coming. And this is obviously a very important conversation right now with COVID. Uh, in, in general, uh, what are some things we can do to become more preventive instead of this downstream effect that you have identified here? So, just this morning, I read an excellent blog post in the Journal of Health Affairs about a new commission that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is creating focused on public health data modernization. Uh, yeah. That that has been um, a big challenge during the pandemic that we've, I think, the DeWine administration and many others have come um, to increased awareness about the fact that we have not invested in the data infrastructure that we need to uh, respond to pandemics and other health emergencies. And in particular, we've not built an infrastructure that allows for the disaggregation of data, breaking down the data by um, a variety of factors, such as race and ethnicity or income or yeah. you know what part of the state a person lives in. Um, and so um, we were very glad to read that blog post this morning to know that there's a national group that's going to to focus on that over the long term. You know, or earlier I mentioned that, of course, our about 20% of our health is influenced by clinical care. About 50% is by is influenced by the social, economic, and physical environments in which we live. About 30% is influenced by our health behaviors or the choices we're making. Now we know that our choices are either supported by or inhibited by the environments in which we live. Right. Um, and I think a, a good example of that is tobacco use and smoking, which you know could uh, our our high adult smoking rate is in part due to a lack of investment in addressing kind of the the upstream drivers of poor health and um, and addictive behaviors. So I'm wondering, Zach, if you could talk a little bit more about that, about Ohio's adult smoking rate and how that is related to health value. Yeah, absolutely. So Ohio ranks um, very poorly on a range of indicators in the dashboard that could be impacted by community-based prevention. Um, Amy brought up uh, smoking, but excessive drinking, um, drug overdose deaths, uh, diabetes, and other um, 
chronic diseases that are related to um, preventable health behaviors, right? Um, all of these ranks could be improved through community-based prevention. And doing that would increase our population health overall. So we ran some correlation analyses to just look at the correlations between specific metric ranks and our overall population health and health value rank. And by far, the strongest correlations that we found were between adult smoking and population health. Mm. Um, the Truth Initiative has a... Um, collection of states they call Tobacco Nation, which are the 12 states with the highest adult smoking rates. Um, and when you look at the map of Tobacco Nation and the map of the states with the worst population health ranks, the resemblance is striking. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's only one state that's not on both maps. Um, <laughs> and, and so if that says anything to you about the um, the, the importance of addressing smoking and other outcomes that are uh, could be improved through prevention activities, I, I don't know what does. And I just want to address something you said earlier about a lot of these policy lifts are big lifts, right? But a lot of them just make sense, too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like we want to strengthen the public health workforce and data systems like Amy has talked about. And we want to prevent addiction and overdose deaths. And one way we want to do that is allocate portion of the revenue from tobacco and alcohol taxes to prevention activities for tobacco and alcohol. Right. Like right. that makes sense. Um, and it could take us a long way. And then we also want to provide services for harm reduction and overdose reversal, because particularly when it comes to addiction, people have to be alive to change, right? So we can make these investments. Um, in many cases, the revenue is there to do it, and it just makes sense. Yeah, and, and to be clear, in saying they're big lifts, I actually... As I was saying that, I, I wanted to make a clarification in my own mind, which is, which is yeah, the the ideas are huge, right? In a way, I mean, to talk about prevention and how do you start to get gain leverage within the state when we are, you know, number forty seven, right, in the aggregate. But so many of the things that come out in the dashboard report are, are tweaks. Actually, uh, there are many, many little things we can do here and there to start to gain. Um, some leverage. And, and I think it's important to not just throw your hands up and say, and I, I do hear this and I wonder, you know, whether you hear this as well or what, because I do want to know a little bit about how people react to the dashboard. Usually people um, who've not seen the dashboard before are surprised. Um, they're surprised by how low our rank is because, you know, Ohio is, is well known for its excellent hospital systems and, right. you know, kind of our overall health care infrastructure. So it is surprising to, to many people when they see that we rank 47th on health value. Uh, now, when you dive into the, the metrics in particular, um, I think generally people begin to understand why it is and what's driving it. We have been encouraged by the response, in particular, of um, the executive branch of government. I mean, going going back to the very beginning of the 
the first dashboard that we put out now eight or so years ago, um, there's a receptivity among the state agencies that we work with to looking at the data, um, looking at what works, and advancing what works. And that's certainly been true of the DeWine administration. We know that child health and well-being has been a priority um, of the governor's from, well, even going back to his prior government service before becoming our governor. And, you know, the creation of the COVID minority health strike force blueprint, or in the blueprint that came out of that and the executive response that came out of that, those showed a strong commitment to addressing issues related to health equity. And we know that there's also a strong interest in, in both addressing child health and well-being, um, closing um, disparities and inequities and addressing public health infrastructure in the legislature too. Um, I think though you hit on a, on a, on a challenge is that it is, everything is interwoven and it's a complex system. And so if you're looking for just one solution, um, you'll you'll never find it uh, because right. it, we we do need a a multifaceted multi-pronged multi-sector approach to improving health value and you know we need legislators and others who are committed to understanding the complex interplay between all of these factors and acting on what the evidence says and then importantly evaluating what works and what doesn't. That's a key step that we often leave out of our policy decisions. We invest a lot of resources, like on addiction, for example. Um, We've invested millions, if not billions of dollars in addiction or substance use treatment um, and even prevention. Uh, We need more evaluation of what's working and what's not so that we can um, focus our resources and our and our tax dollars on the most appropriate and impactful strategies. And focusing on value, I mean, it seems like you you open up the conversation for people to come at the question from a few different perspectives. So let's say they, you know, view substance misuse uh, from a certain lens and aren't inclined to be open to some of the policy ideas. Once you put the value question in there, then you say, but also we're wasting tons of money, right? Which should should kind of create another constituency, right? And you give people a few different ways to come at the same question. Is that one of the benefits of approaching value as opposed to just outcomes? Yeah. So, you know, there's lots, there's lots of dashboards and scorecards that already existed even before we created the health value dashboard. And I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with some of those, like the Commonwealth Fund um, scorecard or America's health rankings or county health rankings. The addition of healthcare spending and the incorporation of metrics related to healthcare spending was unique. Um, to HPIO's approach um, when we created the first dashboard eight a little more than eight years ago. And we, we thought it important because we knew that it was a concern for our state's policymakers, that it's a concern for yeah. businesses that are um, purchasing health insurance on behalf of their employees. We knew it was important for those employees who also often have to contribute 
sizable sums of money to their healthcare costs and their health mm-hmm. insurance premiums. And increasingly so. Yes, increasingly so. So, you know, it's, we, and we, we should clarify too that we view more healthcare spending as a, as a negative thing, um, not as a positive thing. Um, so, Right. Because that reflects right. that we're spending more on downstream care instead of preventing poor health. So it is very, it is a very important component to the dashboard and a unique component, a unique way of looking at things that we have taken at HPIO. My final question really is just about HPIO generally, because, you know, I wanted to jump right into the substance of this report, but I did want to take a quick second. I mean, you've been doing these for eight years now. And as I suggested before, I'm guessing some of the categories are different. You know, we're having new conversations about racism as a public health crisis. We're having conversations about equity that I don't think we were having eight years ago, certainly not in the same way. Uh, Climate change now is increasingly understood to be a very local, very important state issue that specifically concerns health. So I wanted to ask you, Amy, if you could just talk a little bit about how this dashboard has evolved over over the, the, you know, is it changing? Is this constantly something that's sort of responding to changes in how we think about healthcare? And, you know, what next? I mean, do you immediately just get to work on the next one? Because this is a really big undertaking. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the big picture. Sure. Um, so we we aim to keep the metrics in the dashboard roughly the same or similar because we want to be able to compare change over time um, and give policymakers a tool to track progress over time. Um, so our objective is to keep the metrics the same or as close to the same as possible. Um, however, sometimes that's not possible because data sources change, um, data availability changes. We, we also have a health measurement advisory group and an equity advisory group who have uh, contributed to our thinking about the dashboard over time. So we, um, and, and the first the first advisory groups we convened at the beginning were very intensive efforts because they helped us to select those initial metrics. Yeah, get the whole thing up and running for the beginning. Yeah. Right. Over time, um, the role of the advisory groups has changed to help us think about, uh, well, are there new data sources that we should consider incorporating? Um, is there updated data that we should make sure we include? Um, what data should we break out by various factors such as race, race and ethnicity, et cetera. So um, over the, the long term, our aim is to kind of, you know, keep it generally the same, updated every two years so that is a pol- so policymakers have a tool to take stock and whether we're moving in the right direction or not over time. Um, but make sure that it's consistent too um, so that we can um, – look at the trends and know whether or not we need to direct our policy attention in a different way over the upcoming years. Yeah. You mentioned progress, by the way. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't just at least ask you. I mean, in general, um, the report suggests that we've 
they were they were basically in the same place as we were two years ago in the big picture, although there are some differences here and there. Is there any progress you want to call out that we can point to to say, hey, we're not just focusing on the glass half empty here? I'm not saying you are. That tends to be how I am because I want to solve problems. But I'm wondering if there are any any bright spots. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and we highlight it in the dashboard. Um, access to care mm-hmm. uh, is a bright spot for Ohio. We, we rank number seven um, out of the 50 states in D.C. on our access to care domain. Um, and that has improved um, since, I think, middle of the pack, right? 25, 27 um, in our first edition of the dashboard. And now we're number seven. Um, and that has been through attention and effective policy action. Mm -hmm. Um, At the beginning, Amy said that a lack of attention and effective policy action has led to poor health value in the state. But in the case of access to care, um, we've seen real improvements, and that's because of what we've done. Um, And that really is a source of hope um, that comes out of this dashboard. We know that if we can be focused on making improvements in these other areas, um, we may see improvement like we've seen in access to care. Um, so you talked about your students who are coming in wanting to change the world. Um, we're hoping that this dashboard can help put some perspective around how they can really do that. Yeah. And that's by putting some attention and focus in these other areas that, that are so important for overall health. No, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And you know, to quote uh, Dr. Amy Acton, it turns out we can do hard things, right? When we set out to do it. So you know, we just really uh, appreciate the work you do, that you keep at it, and we're going to keep calling on you to help us understand what we can do and where we should be putting our emphasis. So uh, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us, and appreciate you uh, doing this. Thank you, Dan, for the opportunity to share our work. Thank you. My many thanks to Amy and Zach for joining me on the show. You can find links to the 2021 HPIO Health Value Dashboard and other materials in our show notes at prognosisohio.com. This episode of Prognosis Ohio was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at prognosisohio and check out our website at prognosisohio.com where you're going to find links to past episodes and find out how you can support the show. Again, we're going to be taking a bit of leave until August, but that doesn't mean that we're gone. Please be in touch if you'd like to shape the future of the show, offer feedback, or suggest guests or themes you'd like to see us feature on future episodes. And of course, on our website, you have more than 90 episodes you can go back and listen to in our archive. Okay, that's it for now. Have a great summer, be well, and take care of one another.